Grab a Bible, turn to Philippians chapter 1. If you needed just one thing, if you needed just one more thing in your life, what would it be? Perhaps it would be a new car, something more reliable, maybe with better gas mileages. Maybe it would be to have your house paid off or in some other financial gain. Maybe it would be a different job, a new job, a new skill. Maybe it would be health or healing for a relationship or for somebody you care about. Maybe you'd think of Solomon. You'd even think that you should ask for wisdom. But this is the real question. What do you really need most? One of the things I often find the most challenging about Paul's letters in his prayers is if you pause and consider that Paul is praying for the church at Philippi, and here he prays for one thing, and you stop and you recognize that the Holy Spirit is inspiring and co-authoring this prayer, then you recognize it isn't just what Paul is praying for the Philippians. It's not just Paul's request. It's God's. It's what God wants prayed for the Philippian church. is what God wants prayed for us. So what we find this morning is a prayer for the Philippian church inspired by the Holy Spirit. And it is worth noting that Paul doesn't pray for health. Even though undoubtedly there were sick people in that congregation. And he doesn't pray for security. And it is worth noting that there was a lot of persecution. We'll see that. Paul himself writing from jail... But he doesn't pray for security. He doesn't even pray for peace. Paul prays for spiritual maturity. He prays that the church in Philippi would become more mature. From his perspective, that's what they needed most. That's what he petitions God for. So we, I hope, it's my prayer that you would see this morning, spiritual maturity is actually our greatest need. And Paul doesn't just pray for it. Paul's going to give us assurance for it. He's going to show us the means for it. And he's going to show us the process of how to attain it. We're going to see all of that in this small passage in Philippians 1. So pray with me, and we'll get into the text. Gracious Father, we are so thankful for your word, the Bible, that you have given it to us. Father, your word is inspired. It's inerrant. And it's authoritative. Father, by your word, we know who you are. And by your word, we know who we are. And Father, we know we fall short. We know that we sin and we need your mercy and we need your grace. And Father, we are so thankful for Jesus who meets that need for Jesus through whom we have salvation and for Jesus through whom We have the means to grow up and to mature. Father, this morning as we open your word, we want to consider spiritual maturity. The reality that the work of Jesus doesn't just enable salvation, but it enables sanctification. That you saved us, not to leave us as we are, but to grow us. That having given us your image, you've called us to bear your image. Father, Satan desires to cause so many distractions on this topic. We pray, Father, that you would bring clarity and understanding, 
that you would use your word to accomplish your purpose. So, Father, be at work in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week, we started into the book of Philippians. Paul and Timothy writing from a Roman prison to a church in Macedonia. Paul, Silas, Timothy, likely Luke, planted this church in Acts 16. We looked at that last week. And it's fitting that we should add that he is writing to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. So that you and I would understand that Paul is writing to people who are in Christ. Ephesians 1.13 tells us, And you also were included in Christ Jesus when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. So we are to see that these people gathered in Philippi, this church, are not people who've heard the gospel. They're people who've heard the gospel and believe the gospel and have been marked by the Spirit. So it becomes a defined group of believers. And it is so crucial that we make that distinction in the New Testament. Because as we proceed in Philippians and we find promises, you should see that these promises are not for everyone, they're for believers. People who've entrusted their lives to Jesus Christ. And you're going to find some exhortations, some commandments. And they're not for everyone. They're for people who have believed and trusted in Jesus Christ. Paul's writing to encourage and exhort this church, the believers. And he tells them he's going to pray for them. So let's start into our text, verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul is thankful for the church at Philippi. And every time he remembers them, He gives thanks to God for them, and it stirs up joy, affection in him, because they have partnered with him in the gospel. There are two ways you can, two ways you should see that. At the beginning of chapter 4, Paul urges Yodia and Syntyche to agree that the church would help them agree, because along with Clement, they have been laboring in the gospel. We could take from... Philippians, when Paul talks about his partnership in the gospel, that he's actually talking about the members of the church sharing the gospel, the members of the church contending for the gospel, the members of the church encouraging one another in the gospel so that the church manifestly is grown up in Christ's likeness because of the gospel. But Paul was there 10 years ago, and he's writing these people, you're partnering with me. That there was a physical partnership in the pushing forward of the gospel that we are all called to. It's the call of all believers in Jesus Christ that we would partner in the gospel, not just with one, not just with each other, but with our families, neighbors, coworkers, and everyone. We counter, church, we need to see as individuals, that's our calling. And Paul gives thanks 
because he sees them involved in that work. He gives thanks because he knows they're co-laborers with him. But that's not all it means. We also see at the end of chapter 4 that from the very beginning of the church in Philippi, that the church at Philippi began to financially support Paul, aiding him and his team to do the work of ministry. It's fascinating. People often point to the Thessalonian church where Paul did not raise money. Well, if you take Philippian, the book of Philippians at heart, it's because he was receiving support from the Philippian church. So he didn't have to raise money in Thessalonica because the Philippian church was supporting him. And so you see this partnership in the gospel and that they're helping financially for the work of his ministry to go forward. And Paul gives thanks that they've partnered in his work as well. So now he starts to move to the content of his prayer. What is he praying? Because if he prays for them and he gives thanks for them and he does so with joy, what is the content of his prayer? He's moving to that. Verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul tells the Philippian church that he is confident that he who began a good work, if you look back at verse 5, your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, Paul saw their first day, he planted the church, and he says, I'm confident, I'm sure, that he who began a good work, who started in you, will be faithful to bring it to completion in the day of Christ. He is wanting to show them that Jesus will progress them, keep them, hold on to them, and sanctify them. He wants them to see that He who brought them to salvation will continue His work until He's finished. And that's in His second coming. God's work in you is not completed in salvation. God doesn't save you and put you on a shelf. God begins His work in you in salvation moves it into sanctification, and ultimately completes it in glorification in the second coming. I would remind you of the words of Hebrews 10. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It's a picture that when you come to Christ in salvation, you are declared justified. That is, all of your sins are forgiven. God now sees you in the righteousness of Christ. You are justified. And he begins the work of making you righteous sanctification. You're given the image of Christ, and then you're transformed into his image to be like Christ. Sanctification. Paul says, I'm confident that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Don't miss the Ephesians 1.13. They heard the gospel. They believed the gospel. They are given the Holy Spirit as a mark guaranteeing them. God places his mark on you when you believe. God places his mark on you and makes promises. Going to bring it to completion. It's almost like Paul knows that there are people in his church 
in Philippi wondering, God, are you at work in me? God, are you doing anything? God, I don't see. God, I'm trying, but I don't know what, I don't know what you're doing. God, where are you in the midst of this? And Paul wants to lean in and grant them assurance of his work in their lives. I'm sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Paul's encouraging the church that in their trials, in their persecution, in their doubts, in their struggles, to know that God is at work in them. So that they would know they could see, even if they can't feel it, that God is working, He's molding you and shaping you and purifying you. And Paul wants you to have assurance of that. Keep in mind, he's about to pray something for you, but he's setting the table before his prayer. He wants you to have assurance. That, that is what he's about to pray for is effective, but he wants you to see the means first. Verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. It's right for me to feel this way about you. you do you see Paul anticipating your objection? I don't really see God at work. Paul doesn't really know me. Paul doesn't really care. Paul's going, it's right for me to feel this way about you. Like, I know what God's doing. You may not see it. I want you to see it. It's right for me to feel this way. And it's not just because he has affection for them, though clearly he does. Paul clearly cares deeply about these people, but Paul cares about them. And he wants them to understand this because they're partakers with him of grace. So it isn't just them. It's all believers in Christ all of those who've heard the gospel of their salvation and believed, Paul wants them to see it's not in question. It's a theological reality. For they are all partakers with me of grace. Now just for a moment, I want you to consider that statement. Because implicitly, we want to think he's talking just about salvation. I'm saved. Jesus took on my sin, I'm saved, there's something here. But actually, if you dig into what Paul is writing, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel, Paul's actually uncovering for you some of the means at which God wants to mature you. If you're to be partakers of his grace, and go to jail, that's not a happy moment. Paul's actually pointed the Philippian church to the idea that one of the means of his grace is suffering. Church, he's going to unpack that through this whole book. If you don't believe me now, we'll, we'll, we'll touch on it at least four more times in this book. The defense and the confirmation of the gospel are both happening because Paul is suffering, and he's not just suffering, he's suffering well. Don't forget last week. They're thrown in prison. 
They begin to sing. The doors open. They don't leave. That's suffering well, right? Yes, Pastor Ben, that's suffering well. They stay. God leads them to continue to suffer. Paul is pointing to the reality that a means of grace in your life, a means of which you partake in God's grace, is suffering. By the way, I don't know if you ever pick up on this, but Matt does an absolutely fantastic job of giving us a vocabulary and a soundtrack for suffering, right? What you sang this morning is a soundtrack for suffering. So that when you are in trials and struggles, when life is beating you up, and you start to hum, my God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. He's preparing you. That's God, not Matt. Matt, Matt's giving you God. He's giving you a soundtrack to suffer. Because suffering is a means of his grace. We don't like to think about it that way. But it's God molding you and shaping you. It's God bringing you through a process so that you'll be like Christ. Paul's pointing out God wants to shape you. God wants you to endure suffering. So he brings it about. Because God wants to show you that his grace will be sufficient for you, even in your suffering, even as it brings you to maturity. So verse 8, he confirms again his care. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. Again, Paul affirms his love and care for them from prison, testifying that God is at work testifying that God will complete his work, testifying that God's work will include suffering, and testifying that God will bring them through to completion into maturity. That brings us to his prayer, verse 9. And if you pay attention, and I want you to pay attention, you should note the progression. If you got a Bible, start circling your so's because it shows you progression in Spiritual maturity, let's start in verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve of what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Paul prays for the church. And he prays that their love would abound more and more and more. He prays that their love would abound, that it would grow, that it would multiply. And if you follow through with the whole text, you start to understand that he actually prays that the church would love one another in an increasing way. Because it's not talking about God's love abounding. It's not even talking about God, their love for God abounding. 
He's praying that their love would abound more and more in an increasing way. That they would grow to be more attentive to one another. That they would bear one another's burdens. This is the thrust of the New Testament. That we love each other well. As Galatians 6.2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That is, if you want to follow what Christ said, what Christ commanded, you must walk close enough with other people that they could see your burdens and then carry them. And you must walk close enough to other people that they could see your burdens and carry them. Now, I want you to see this because this is the antithesis of our culture now. Because most people in our culture want to perceive that spiritual maturity is a function of intellectual assent. He knows a lot of stuff. That guy knows his Bible really well. That's spiritual maturity. But that's not what Paul prays here. Paul prays that the spiritual maturity would begin with them loving one another more and more and more. With knowledge and discernment. Paul prays that they would grow in their appreciation of one another. You start to see an import of community. That you can't grow mature without other people. You can't grow mature without other believers. This is why this is a letter to the church at Philippi, not the letter to the to Phil. Right? We got to move past this idea where we read letters like letter to Phil or Ben. This is God's love letter to me. We do ourselves a disservice when we don't see the communal aspect of the New Testament. That God put us here purposefully together. Paul prays that their love would abound more and more knowledge and all discernment. The NIV says knowledge and depth of insight. You're to pick up that these are cognitive words. They're thinking words. They're learning words. It testifies to the reality that to mature you must be growing in knowledge. And you must be growing in discernment. But not in natural knowledge and natural discernment, but spiritual knowledge and spiritual discernment. Brothers and sisters, you've got to be in His Word. For if you want to grow in maturity, if you want to grow in your love for His people, it's not going to come about naturally. It's not you willing yourself to love people. It's going to be God molding and shaping your heart in His Word. God pointing out to you your errors and deficiencies in His Word so that you might love His people. First Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Spiritual maturity is not just knowledge. It's not just having information. Spiritual maturity in this context 
is loving God's people well, using God's Word to do it so that God's Word is growing you up to help you be attentive to His people, growing you up so that your priorities begin to shift away from me, 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 and begin to be aware of what's going on around you and how can you be a blessing and how can you encourage and how can you build up and how can you pour yourself out to God's people. So that, in verse 10, you may approve of what is excellent. That over time, spinning in God's word, God's going to grow up, grow you up into maturity to love his people better. You're going to love his people better. You're going to be in his word and your discernment is going to start to be fine-tuned. Not by the world, but by his word and loving people. Being in the word, being in community, such that you could approve of what is excellent. And your life will be refined more and more and more so that you might be pure and blameless. Do you see the sows in this passage that show us progress? He prays that you would grow in your love for his people so that you would grow in discernment, so that your lives might be purified, so that righteousness might flow from you, so that you might reflect Jesus ultimately that God would be glorified and praised. Jesus gives us a picture of that in Matthew 5. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let your light shine before others. Do you know that that's loving people well? Let your light shine before others, living sacrificially, putting others' needs before your own. Let your light shine before others so that others may see your good works and give glory to the Father who's in heaven. That's the words of Jesus. And if you know Jesus is your Savior, you should see God didn't want to leave you where you are. God's calling you and I to maturity. One of the things I love about this passage is it gives you the full picture from the first day until now. God has been calling you to maturity from the first day until now and from now until the day of completion. He is calling you to maturity. Every single day he puts breath in your lungs. God is molding you, shaping you, and refining you. If you ask the question, why is life so hard? It's because he's molding and shaping you and refining you. He is far less interested in your comfort and your pleasure than you are. Friday mornings, we are going through the book of Revelation in Contenders, and it's fascinating when you see Satan be the king of pleasure. Like the reason we like comfort and pleasure, it ain't Jesus. You see that so clearly in Revelation 18. 
we start to see that God is doing something amongst his people. It's growing us. It's maturing us. And that he's willing to use suffering as a means of grace to accomplish his good, perfect, and pleasing will. Church, we need to be reminded. God is maturing us. We need to be reminded that just as iron sharpens iron, that that process is abrasive. We need to be reminded that God wants to grow us and to mature us. And so he gives Paul these words to pray. That they would see. That they would have assurance. That they would know the means. That they could see and learn how to love his people more and more and more. And that you do that by staying in his word. That they could see that the more that they stay in his word and stay amongst his people, that they will grow in discernment. There ought to be things that we stop and go, you know, I used to do that, but I stopped. I used to do that. And now just, it's not good for my soul. It's not healthy. It's not helpful for me anymore. I've grown in discernment. That we would grow in righteousness. That our lives would increasingly reflect Jesus. That he might be glorified and praised. Paul prays to that end that you would see. And church, know that there's tremendous comfort here. Because he's sure that God's going to do it. God's in the process of maturing you. He's confident. He's forecasting for you as partakers of his grace. Suffering will be part of that. And he's showing you a plan that you would grow and that you would mature, that you'd stay in his word and you'd stay with his people, that he might grow you up through that. I thank God in all of my remembrance of you, giving thanks for your partnership in the gospel and praying for your maturity. We pray for us. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for salvation. We're thankful for Jesus Christ and for his blood. That you have purchased our sin, that you have set us free, that you've allowed us to become children of God to walk in freedom. Father, we're thankful that you have called us to maturity. You don't just save us and leave us alone. But you save us and you put us on a path to grow. Father, you in your goodness and your kindness have given us a body to walk in. That we could watch other people suffer. We could learn from them. And we could encourage them and we could support them and we could bear their burdens so that when we endure the same kinds of things, we see hope in it. We could share the hope that we have in it. Father, I pray that you would continue to mature us as a church. That you would allow our love to abound more and more and more. Father, that you would cause us to grow in our affections for one another that we'd be mindful of one another. We would greet one another and care for one another and love one another and bear one another's burdens. Father, would you grow us in knowledge and all discernment? Would you keep us centered into your word on your truth? 
Father, that your word would cause us to love more so that we might approve of what is excellent. Father, this world is full of all kinds of things it's offering us. And we want to approve of what is excellent, what is pure, what is holy, what is right. Father, that you might cause us to become pure and blameless, that you'd be so at work in our lives, refining us and shaping us into your righteousness, that we'd be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Father, that your Son would be praised. Father, would you be at work in us, molding us and shaping us and calling us to maturity. Father, we might follow Jesus all the best. It's in his name we pray. Amen.